The Theater of Freedom, a poem by Hafiz that I want to start with. Uh, Just beautiful, actually. Really no other reason than that. In my divine studio, what I've been working on is this. Painting the truth and revealing a more realistic picture of God. Tearing down the cruel walls that separate you from the tenderness of that fire. Someone must be withholding the crucial lines in all those stories you have heard of our friend, for there's still too much fear and pallor upon your cheeks, and I rarely see you in that marvelous theater of freedom. Hafiz, no, you could not describe him, even if we sat side by side on a caravan for years, even if we slept close in my desert tent and you became familiar with the holy scent of the sun and my master, that they leave behind whenever they visit me. For something has happened to your youthful passions. That great fuel you once had to defend yourself against becoming tame. And your eyes, your eyes now often tell me that you want that your once vital talent to extract joy from the air has fallen into a sleep. All that you could ever say of me can only describe my camel's tail and that coarse hair that is barely visible sometimes on the left side of an old man's nose. In my divine studio, where I'm sitting right now, I'm crafting your heart, your lyre, and your flute. How I long for the day when you will join me, when you will join me in knowing that extraordinary humor and all the enchanting realities of the infinite performances of God. I'm going to give the lecture that I was supposed to give two weeks ago called uh, Wisdom Perspectives. And uh, the idea behind the title is to to take some of the truths that the scriptures say and to kind of, I don't know how to describe what, screw them into the fulcrum of your daily life so that you have something that you hold on to that you measure the rest of the day by. Uh, it's, it's the seeds for discrimination, really, for putting together an eye that sees, for, for acquiring ears that hear, so that God isn't, isn't uh, such a, I guess, uh, isn't such a silent mystery. It'll always be a mystery, no doubt, but at least not a silent mystery, not a vacant or an absent mystery, but a presence and a, a partner, a companion. Uh, for living and for being, so that we can experience some of the joys and some of the happinesses that that Hafiz is alluding to from his realization and the inspiration of all of his poetry to turn all of us into poets, maybe. Not so much poets, I guess, writing on paper so much, but poets in the way that we live. The master does it. He, he kind of shows us how to take a truth and how to, how to, to focus it, how to, to make a handle of it that you don't let go of. He says, yes, yes, discriminate about objects. I start off with probably the most sensitive one that he does, but he says, what is there in money or in a beautiful body? Discriminate 
you will find that even the body of the most beautiful person consists of bones, flesh, fat, and other disagreeable things. Why should a man give up God and direct his attention to such things? Why should a man forget God for the sake of these things? It's an important point. He says, he'll say later on in another scripture, that discrimination is, is, is a key, one of the key factors in being able to shake loose our, our, our delusions. You know, because this world, as we've talked about before, he, Mayas has some way of taking things and literally flipping them 180 degrees. So that which seems right is actually not helpful. And those things which seem ridiculous are actually helpful in pulling us through. We, we, we think that we want all of the things in this world in a sincere way because we think that they're enjoyable. We think that, that they have something of some kind of value, that we do enjoy our car, we do enjoy our house, we do enjoy our family and our relatives. Uh, you know, we do enjoy our passions and whatnot and our accomplishments. And there certainly is a certain degree of satisfaction in building an ego, building a sense of self upon all the hard work that we do and all the studies that we do. And uh, because of that switch in Maya, you know, those things seem to have meaning. They seem to be real. And yet the people that have had the largest effect on the world, the people who have remembered the most for their love in the world, had none of those things, didn't, didn't take any delight in any of those things. And so that reveals to us a, a truth that's deeper, that, that to run after those things squares you firmly in, in that, you know, pegs you in that place of ordinary. <laughs> Your love, there'll be some love, but it'll be this big. You know, there'll, there'll be some happiness, but it'll be this big. And all of those small happinesses and those small loves that are enjoyable in a, to a certain degree will be accompanied by an equal misery and an equal loneliness and an equal unhappiness that comes from them because everything of the senses has a price you know every everything that you do has has a downside that's the nature of it and so Takur is saying i he, that that spiritual life religion these things they're not asking you to do something they're, they're not asking you to do something that's actually cool <laughs> they're not asking you to not do things that are actually fun you know, it's, it's, it's not a rain-on-your-party situation. He's saying, look deeper. I want to show you something that's real. You know, when that woman came to, to Takor, she had a husband who was a, uh, an alcoholic, and he was beating her, and she ran to, to Ramakrishna for some protection. And Ramakrishna, and she complained to Takor, you know, he drinks all the time, and, and he, he behaves obviously badly. He's beating me. And so Takur says to her, he says, well, bring him here, and I'll give him that wine that he does not need to drink again. Meaning, bring him here, and I'll give him what he's looking for in that bottle. Bring him here, and I'll give him something that won't run out, that he won't wake up with a hangover from the next morning. I'll give him something that will last, something that's meaningful. And that's a second clue for us. You know, I remember in my life when I was working and trying to accomplish miscellaneous things uh, one of the things that was most frustrating to me is that there was always that period at night when you go to bed and you don't you haven't fallen asleep and you just kind of sit there and sort of things just run through your mind 
And I was always so sad that no matter what I did during the day, no matter how much fun I had, I was always in the same situation at the end of the day. I was laying alone in my bed without any of it. The enjoyment wasn't there anymore. The excitement wasn't there anymore. The, you know, it was all churning of memory. And somehow, after a while, you know, <laughs> it would be a very short while if you actually discriminated. If you're not discriminating, it might be after a long while, you start to feel like, wow, is, is this enough for me? You know, I always picture myself adding 50 years to my life. Of course, now I kind of have to shrink that number. <laughs> little by little, that was a harsh realization at one point. Where I was like, because I, I was so, re so readily adding 50 years to measure how important things were or if I was going the right direction. And uh, my measure was always, you know, my greatest fear, which is to end up in a in an old folks home somewhere, kind of neglected with no one to visit me and sitting there alone. And uh, I always put myself in that situation to kind of measure the direction my life was going. It's like, with what I'm doing and what I'm valuing now and what I'm building now, is it going to give me something sitting in that dingy chair in that dank room with no visitors? You know, with yellow fingernails and <laughs> all the horror, the horror of old age. No offense to anybody who considers himself old. I figure I'm safe because I haven't met a single person yet who thinks they're old. <laughs> and, and every year that I grow older, like I'm 53 and I think I'm old, you know. I have not yet met a person who says, yeah, you're old. Everybody's, oh, you're a baby, you're a baby. So I want to keep our mind on, on this idea of discrimination today. We're going to really hound on it. It's, I, there's nothing new in it for those who are looking for something new today. There's not going to be anything new today. We're just going to try and come up with a, a way of holding on to this so that we walk through the next week in a way that's changed, in a way that's closer to being what we're looking for, being what, we're, what we've forgotten. In Karma Yoga, Swami Vivekananda says, although a man has not studied a single system of philosophy, although he does not believe in any god and has never believed, although he has not prayed even once in his whole life, if the simple power of good actions has brought him to that state where he is ready to give up his life and all else for others, he has arrived at the same point to which the religious man will come through his prayer, through his philosophy, and through his knowledge. And so you may find that the philosopher, the worker, and the devotee all meet at one point, that one point being self-abnegation. That one point being forgetting this lower self. There is one thing which is the world and another thing which is God. And this distinction is very true. What they mean by the world is selfishness. Unselfishness is God. One may live on a throne in a golden palace and be perfectly unselfish, and then he is in God. Another may live in a hut and wear rags and have nothing in the world, and yet, if he is selfish, he is intensely merged in the world. Intensely worldly. So this is one of those pegs. One of those places in the scripture, the, 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 quali the qualification that I used for finding a peg is whenever the scripture says something is God. And here Vivekananda is saying unselfishness is God. The point of our religion is to, to attain that, 
to attain that self-abnegation, not in the sense of beating or, you know, hurting ourselves or, or any of those negative notions. It's letting go of a wrong idea for a higher idea, for a better idea of ourself. There is to be found in every religion the manifestation of this struggle toward freedom. It is the groundwork of all morality, of unselfishness, which means getting rid of the idea that men are the same as their little body. So to get rid of our selfishness, you know, you, you hear all the time, and there's a truth in it, that even in our service there's a selfishness because we enjoy it. You get a good feeling from it. You get a buzz, you know. It's probably the best dollar you ever spent. You spend a dollar giving it to, to a needy person, and you're happy for a whole 15 minutes. What else can you buy with a dollar that lasts 15 minutes, right? <laughs> so even, even in a capitalistic mind frame, giving is a good thing. <laughs> it's the right thing. But to let go of that, that lower self, and the first part of that is to let go of your idea that you are just this, that you're a body. And so you use that discrimination to come up with it. You know, Takor says later on that we should discriminate all the time. Even when you're asleep, he says, you should be discriminating. That's how important it is. He described Vivekananda as walking with a drawn sword of discrimination in front of him at all times. That was the greatness of Vivekananda. That's why we have his picture up here. That's why we worship him and offer him things in the morning, to remember that he is what we are that he attained that freedom of delusion that we're looking for, that he saw that because he carried that sort of discrimination and was never fooled, never for a moment believed that he was this body, never for a moment served this body or the idea of, a, of himself as just being a man. You know, unfortunately, these things begin to occur to us when we're in the second half of life, when we, <laughs> when we just don't have the energy, you know, to, to fight it and to do what we could have done in the first half of our life. But we have to do it nonetheless. We're called to it, to stop thinking of yourself as a body. But what does that mean? It means simple things. This is what discrimination is. It's to take these statements that we're very comfortable with, that we hear again and again and again, and to freeze them and stop them and say, wait a minute, what does that mean? What is that saying to me? How do I use it? How is it practical? How do I get it off the shelf of religion and put it into the action of life, of living, of going outside and, and walking around? What does it mean to me? How do I use that? So discriminate all the time. But what is that? What am I doing when I'm discriminating? It's doing exactly this. It's taking something off the shelf and saying, what does it mean? If I'm not the body, what does that mean? Well, it means you stop querying yourself for what you want. I've mentioned this before, you know. The, the, the first time that, I, that, that that caught the attention of my discrimination was in San Francisco when I would go out and I had five walks, five different routes that I could walk, you know, and one went through the commercial district and one went through the woods and one went through the nice neighborhood. I had, one went down by the beach. So I had five walks that I could go on every day. And so I would find that I would go outside, I would stand on the front veranda of the monastery and, and ask myself, what, what walk would you like to do today? And, and I found, you know, after 15 years of having the same five options, <laughs> none of them became very satisfying. You know, it's like after a while, we're like, mm -hmm, I don't know. But you would sit there, and I found that the period of time for me to decide was 
was becoming unacceptably long and actually putting me in kind of a weird state of mind because I really didn't want to do any of them. I wanted something new and something fresh, but there we were. So I sat there and I thought, okay, well, why am I asking myself? I'm doing this for exercise and all five of them are exercise. Just stop. It doesn't matter what you want. Just go. Start walking. Take the turn that comes. <laughs> like that. So it was a first clue to me. It was like, wow, I ask myself that thing all the time. What do I feel like eating? Where do I feel like going today? What movie do I want to see? What show am I going to watch on TV? What book do I want to read? What music do I want to listen to? Over and over and over and over again, I'm querying the mind for what it wants, encouraging myself to define desire, to come up with limited things that seem satisfactory. So that's the first thing that discrimination means. It means to stop asking that question. You know, start asking, what's good for my roommate? What can I do for my neighbor? Who could I make something for? Who could I call to encourage? You know, who can I invite to come over to, to, to make a dinner for them? Who do I think is lonely? Who's, you know, maybe that Swami C guy in the old folks home would like me to drop by <laughs> and visit him. To start discriminating, make it real like that. Realize that, that you're making a wrong turn if you're sitting there asking yourself what you want to do. Take that and instead flip it and ask about what somebody else needs on a regular basis. Become that person who's always sending the card at the right time, who's always showing up at the door when somebody's sick with their, with their uh, you know, vegetarian chicken soup, <laughs> as it were, or chicken soup if they like it. But anyway, to have that kind of mind, to have that kind of set. And so use your discrimination in that way. Sharpen your sword. Make yourself a better person by stopping and thinking about what you're doing and what's being said to you. Unselfishness is God. What does that mean? You know, what does that mean? Swami Vivekananda goes on to say, karma yoga is the attaining through unselfish work of that freedom which is the goal of all human nature. Every selfish action, therefore, retards our reaching the goal, and every unselfish action takes us toward the goal. That is why the only definition that can be given of morality is this. That which is selfish is immoral, and that which is unselfish is moral. We all want to get to the goal, right? We don't have to go and become, not, not that I'm going to discourage you from becoming a great Sanskrit scholar and studying the depths of all of the fantastic scriptures that Hinduism has, but that's nowhere near the point. Instead, Take this simple map right here. Every act of unselfishness takes you one step closer to your goal. What else do you have to know? If it's taking you one step closer to the goal, you're eventually going to get there. What an easy and straightforward path Vivekananda has just laid out for you. So, in addition to memorizing all of those scriptures, in, in addition to learning Sanskrit and to digging in the scriptures, simply map out in your day unselfish acts and know with each one of them you are one step closer to the divine. One step closer. And it's something that requires no particular belief. Just like Vivekananda said, if a man has never prayed to God, never believed in God, that if he does these 
does a life of unselfish action, he will arrive at the same goal as the most religious person. That's why all religions are the same. Or not necessarily the same, but all of them are true. Because at the heart, all of them are saying the same thing over and over and over again. Please be unselfish. Please query what others need before you ask what you need. When you have extra money, don't think, oh, what vacation am I going to do with it? You know, or if you, if you simply can't let go of the idea of the vacation, think, who can I take with me? <laughs> you know, who would like to do that? We may ask the man who clings to the idea of little personalities to consider the case of a person who has become perfectly unselfish, who has no thought for himself, who does no deed for himself, who speaks no word for himself, and then say, where is his himself? That himself is known to him only so long as he thinks, acts, or speaks for himself. If he is only conscious of others, of the universe, of the all, where is his himself? It is gone forever. You see, it's that, it's that finding unity. When, 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 when the mind, when Takur's saying, become unselfish, he's showing you how to lose that sense of separation, that thing that's causing you to be afraid, that thing that's causing you to be unsatisfied to forget that lower self, which is not true, to give until, until there's just nothing else. You're just always thinking of that other person. That's how you arrive at that self-abnegation. That's how you drop the idea of being a body. That's how you drop the idea of being anything. You are, you are the being, not the being something. <laughs> the existence itself is you. Not any of the adjectives that you could put around that. You are existence itself, love itself, intelligence itself. Only then can you have love for love's sake, for the sake of the self, the true self. What does that mean, love for love's sake? Do we know? That's another good one to capture, to freeze, and to sit there and look at it for a while. Because this is something that I dare say, I, I, I feel like in the last couple of weeks I understood something a little bit more than I understood it before. And it's this idea of love for love's sake. It's, it's a difficult one. I really haven't found a good way to describe it. I've tried a couple of times in the last two weeks. I'm going to take a jump at it without offending mouth. <laughs> But for a long time, I acted religiously or morally or unselfishly for the sake of something that I was putting outside of myself. For the first part of my life, it was Jesus. For the middle part of my life, I wasn't thinking about it at all. <laughs> and nowadays, I've kind of put Takor in there, and Jesus is in there as well, and occasionally somebody else is in there. But it was always something else outside of me. And I'm beginning to see and beginning to understand that that's because I had no idea of what me was. And then I began to understand that I am that highest ideal of love, that, that Takor didn't come to be something for me. He, he didn't come to give me something to worship. He came to remind me 
that if I was unselfish, that if I could get rid of my delusion, my life would look like him. My daily being would look like that. He was trying to show me not something new, not something to worship, not something grand and beautiful to look at, though he is all of those things. He lived that life, and all of the avatars have lived that life, to demonstrate to you what you are if you can put aside your selfishness, if you can do the work and forget your ignorance for a moment, if you can, for a moment, stop querying yourself endlessly about what you want and what you like and started living for somebody else, that that's what the freedom is that Vivekananda is talking about. He's not talking about the freedom of doing what you want when you want to do it with no, with no consequence. That's the freedom the world is chasing. That's the freedom that, that you know, we stand for as, <laughs> as America. But he's talking about a freedom to be what you are, that Takur that is within you, that Jesus that is your nature, that love which is the impetus for everything that you do. He's trying to show you what your life would look like if you would let yourself be free, if you stopped squelching your unselfishness, if you stopped being afraid to to give a little bit more than what you think you have. You know, it's, that, it's that total surrender to let go of this idea of what you think you are and just for a moment live as you are. Imagine all of those feelings of love being able to be expressed. Imagine all of that inspiration coming out of you all the time. You know, that feeling that you got the first time you gave the dollar. What if your whole life became like that? Like a sister Teresa, you know. Just someone who just gave until the whole world stopped and looked. It's just like, wow. How is she doing that? Because we think that's incredible. But she was just being what you are. She was just being what you, what you long to be. She was not confused about that. And her life was that message to you, saying, look at this. Look at this. If you set it down for a minute, look what happens. Look what your life becomes. The whole world stops and looks and says, wow. What a beautiful thing. What an amazing thing. And it's nothing more than what you are. Nothing more than what's inside. What is it that attracts a man to a man, a man to a woman, a woman to a man, animals to animals, drawing the whole universe, as it were, toward one center? It is what is called love. Its manifestation is from the lowest atom to the highest being, omnipotent, all-pervading. This is love. What manifests itself as attraction in the sentient and the insentient, in the particular and the universal, is this love of God. It is the one motive power that is in the universe, 
Under the impetus of that love, Christ gives his life for humanity. Buddha, even for an animal, the mother for her child, the husband for the wife. It is under the impetus of the same love that men are ready to give up their lives for their country. And strange to say, under the impetus of this same love, the thief steals and the murderer murders. Even in these cases, the spirit is the same, but the manifestation is different. This is the one motive power in the universe. The thief has love for gold, but the love is there. It is misdirected. So in all crimes, as well in all virtuous actions, behind stands that eternal love. Suppose a man writes a check for $1,000 for the poor of New York, and at the same time, in the same room, another man forges the name of a friend. The light by which both of them write is the same, but each one will be responsible for the use he makes of it. It is not the light that is to be praised or blamed. Unattached, yet shining, is everything, is love, the motive power of the universe, without which the universe would fall to pieces in a moment. And this love is God. So there's our second statement. Love is God. So we've got unselfishness is God. That's our first wisdom perspective. That's the first nail we put in the wall every single day. Unselfishness is God. Boom. Number one. Not necessarily number one, but a number one. <laughs> Being the second one, love is God. It's the only motive power in everything that I do. So you have a choice. You can do things that are going to pull karma. <laughs> well, that means it's things that you're going to have to pay for. You know, things, things that bring, bring a consequence, a misery that's equal to the pleasure. Or you can let that come unfiltered, undistorted by mind, and just let that love express itself purely, without a calculation. Because love without a calculation is, love free, is, is, is an action free of karma. It's an action that brings moksha, that brings realization because it doesn't have a particular. It doesn't have a refraction of mind in it. So this God is love. And he's the reason that you like anything that you like. So stop abstracting this love into objects and into people and into things. Understand right away, it's God that I'm wanting, that I'm manifesting. It's God that I want to see. So in the same way that you take one self unselfish act and become one step closer to God, now you can manifest love and you're one step closer to God, one step closer to the goal of your journey. So how do you do that? Consider your life. How do you manifest love? Oddly enough, it's very similar to how you manifest unselfishness. We'll find that about all these things because that unity underlies all of this. So manifest love. And when you see love, when your child comes home from school and he's got those, that sweet look in his eyes as he's showing you what he did, stop getting tripped over the particular. Understand the reason you're happy is because you're seeing God. You're seeing love. You're seeing evidence of love. You're seeing evidence of purity. Stop thinking that it's a thing. Stop thinking that it's the object. And be glad that you have seen God, who is everywhere 
and always perfect. But if you can do it at just this moment and realize it's not the young boy, it's not the look in his eyes, it's the fact that love is manifesting that is bringing you joy and bringing you happiness. It's because you're seeing God that you're feeling that delight inside. Because you're feeling your nature, you're seeing your, man, your nature manifested without a refraction. You're seeing that purity, that flow. And when you abstract it like that, then you begin to see it in more places because you haven't tied it to something. You haven't strapped it down to an object. And you begin to see, wow, there's, there's love there too. You know, you'll be watching your... God forbid you watch soap operas, but, <laughs> but you watch it, you know, the, that, that, the, all the relationships, God, and those things. I remember, I only know because I worked in, a, in a, a kitchen at a country club when I was a teenager, and uh, <laughs> the, the, the head cook was, was this woman named Gloria. She was giant, and uh, she was a, 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 a black woman. I only say that because she had that certain uh, just... I don't know what you would have, what you call that or what it is, but it's a certain attitude of just a boisterous, powerful existence of just a great amount of joy. But she used to watch these, she'd be sitting there cooking her heart out, but she would always have her little, that little tiny portable television going with her soap operas on it. And she would get so worked up when Laura and Luke were breaking up or when this, <laughs> when this, when this man was going out with that woman, she would just get all caught up in it. And, you know, you look back at that and you think about that. That's the power of love. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. I mean, you can go, you can go the physical route and say, look, that's a box with exactly what, I don't know how many, what, 230 dots this way and maybe 640 dots that way. And back then they were white or black, you know. So it was like, there's, there's nothing there. And here's Gloria, this giant powerhouse of a woman, you know, filled with happiness, filled with anger, <laughs> filled with frustration, and locked in every day to what's going on with Luke and Laura, you know, <laughs> this whole thing. So if love can manifest that easily with absolutely nothing there, think about what it is when you recognize it, when you recognize that love can come from nothing being there, that it's just you being stirred, that nature that's within you that's being stirred. Imagine when you learn that. Imagine when you understand that it had nothing to do with that stupid thing. It had nothing to do with the kid. It had nothing to do with the accomplishment. It had nothing to do with the raise. It had nothing to do with the new car. Then what happens? Then you become free. Then you don't have to come up with the money for the car. You don't have to dedicate 18 years to raising a kid, <laughs> which might be a joy anyway, but I'm not here to discourage any of that. I'm just telling you. <laughs> Look beyond it. Find out that you can have all of that and infinitely more by recognizing that it's not in things, that those things are there because of what you are already, reflecting it back to you in those charming eyes, reflecting it back to you in that you know, beautiful shape of a new car or whatever it is it cost you. The disciple, hearing this, looks at Takor and he says, well, once in a while, strength of mind comes. <laughs> but then again, I think that if I would appear at the deputy magistrate's examination, that wealth and name and fame would come. 
and then, then I would be living well and be happy. Or he's not talking to Thakur, he's talking to Swamiji, sorry. Swamiji says, whenever such thoughts come to mind, discriminate within yourself between the real and the unreal. All right, so we're coming right back to that task. When you find yourself thinking it's an object, when you find yourself wrapped up in the story of the TV show, take a moment, break out of the hypnotism of that. Break out, break away from the objects. Close your eyes for a moment and abstract it out. Realize these things that are changing are not the real thing. These things that are changing are not real. They're manifesting something which is, something that exists in this eternal now, this eternal moment, this moment, this present moment that has never had a beginning and never had an end, that it's right here, right now, that everything is coming out of this moment. How do I manifest love in this moment? How do I do that consciously? How do I do that with freedom? Have you not read the Vedanta? Even when you sleep, keep the sword of discrimination at the head of your bed so that covetousness cannot approach you even in a dream. Practicing such strength, renunciation will gradually come and then you will see that the portals of heaven are wide open to you. Through discrimination. What is discrimination? It's seeing the truth. It's not letting yourself be lied to by yourself. <laughs> it's a very hard thing to do, especially the older you get because you've invested more and more and more and more into the delusion of the life that you've been living and the price seems higher and higher and higher for admitting that it's not working. It becomes more and more difficult to say, wow, <laughs> after all of this, I'm not any happier than I was before I started any of it at 18. It's not getting me there. It's hard to come to the truth of discrimination unless you're willing to surrender and face it. The helpful part is that because it's not the things that have mattered, because it's not the accomplishments that have mattered, because love existed independent of them, you don't have to change anything about the external arrangements. Like Vivekananda said, he said, the person who's living in a, in a golden palace, you know, sitting on a giant throne, if he's unselfish, he's in God. He's a realized, he can be a realized soul. So it's not that you have to go sell the house. You know, often we think renunciation means I have to go sell the house and I have to leave my wife and I have to forget my kids. No, 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 no. What renunciation means is that you come to understand that all of the joy that you get in life is not from those things. That's why you're not happier now than you were when you were 18, assuming you're not, you know, <laughs> which is probably fairly safe. We, we seem to manage a steady stream of feeling kind of the same, ups and downs, ins and outs as we go through life, no matter what's out there. That should be a clue that what's out there isn't the thing that matters, that it's the happiness you're bringing to the table. And that maybe when that's being blocked is because you're making that mistake over and over and over again. So it's not something to be afraid of. It's just something to take the challenge. How do I rearrange what's inside so that love is manifesting purely outside? So that those things that give me such a joy in life don't become the things that give me such a joy in life. It becomes a recognition of the joy that is my life. The joy that is my life.
Where will the householders be then? What way are they to follow? Swamiji says, to satisfy your smaller desires and have done with them forever, and to relinquish the greater ones by discrimination, that is the way. Without renunciation, God can never be realized, even if Brahma himself enjoined otherwise. <laughs> renunciation has to come. There's no way to do it without letting go of those things. There's no other way to do it. You have to stop thinking about yourself. You have to be willing to take a chance at being unselfish, at loving, at looking beyond what you have, at looking at the truth of your circumstance. The smaller things, doesn't, they don't matter, according to Thakur and Vivekananda. So you can have that ice cream. <laughs> those things aren't important. The bigger ones, you know, the things that are really pulling you down, those are the things where you need to discriminate. What fear is there, Swamiji says? Always discriminate. Your body, your house, these jivas and the world are all absolutely unreal like a dream. Always think that this body is only an inert instrument and the self-contained purusha within is your real nature. The adjunct of mind is his first and subtle covering, and then there is this body which is his gross outer covering. The indivisible, changeless, self-effulgent purusha or soul is lying hidden under these delusive veils. Therefore, your real nature is unknown to you. The direction of the mind, which always runs after the senses, has to be turned within. The mind has to be killed. That running narration of the mind that's telling you the way things are, based on the senses all the time, has to be stopped. Does that mean you're just going to sit there like a, like a dumb piece of wood because the mind is stopped? No, because that just means the mind stops getting in the way of perfect love manifesting through you. It means that you become what you are. He's talking about the Purusha here. He's talking, he's talking about God. Love. Unselfishness. It exists within you. It is you. It is your nature. It is what you are. And if you stop running after the things of the senses, stop the narrative of the mind that's based on the senses, halt it, what happens then? God manifests through you clearly. He manifests through you clearly. You're made in his image. What is that image? Love. I say that a million times, and I can never say it enough. I love that idea. That God is love, and you're created in his image. That you are that pure love. That is such a profound thing to me. It's such a wonderful thing. It's the only thing that's made this crazy life worthwhile. I don't know the number of times <laughs> in life when you look honestly. You know, I remember before, before I started hearing these truths and before I started finding out these things, that horrible, bitter emptiness that I would stare at, you know, on the nights when I would stumble home from the clubs alone, thinking, God, <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, hoping that I don't remember the next day all the things that I've been involved in. Waking up the next morning like, oh, God. <laughs> Climbing myself out of bed, and for what? You know, going to my cubicle rat job, which I had one. I had the real, I was a bureaucrat of bureaucrats working for a, uni a state university. That meaninglessness of life, 
you know, that, that idea. And it's, it's, it's manifested over and over and over again. You know, I'd get up every morning and make my bed. And I couldn't help after a while just to stand there and look at it and realize, why do I do this? I'm just going to have to make it again tomorrow. <laughs> you know, you wash the dishes. And if you're sitting there discriminating, you're like, ah! <laughs> I'm just going to do it again and again and again and again and again. Everything is a cycle going round and round and round and round. Where is the meaning in this? And it wasn't until I was taught that love stands behind it all that I understood that washing dishes is profound when it's done for someone else. You know, that everything can be done in service of, to that ideal of love. Even if you're alone in the room, you can make that bed perfectly for the ideal. You can make it perfectly so instead of standing back and looking at it and going, why, I just have to do it again tomorrow, you can stand back and look at how perfect it is and say, there you are, love. I did the best at something that didn't matter at all. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? It becomes the thing that makes your life important. It becomes the thing that makes your life worthwhile. It's the one thing that's free of the tyranny of cycle, of going round and round and round. It's the thing that makes poetry mystical. <laughs> I could wax off on a Bhakta's delight there for a while on that idea. The Vedanta does not, in reality, denounce the world. The ideal of renunciation nowhere attains such a height as in the teachings of the Vedanta, but at the same time, dry, suicidal advice is not intended. It really means deification of the world, giving up the world as we think of it, as we know it, as it appears to us, and to know what it really is, deify it. It is God alone. We read at the commencement of one of the oldest of the Upanishads, whatever exists in this universe is to be covered with the Lord. It's that understanding. This is, this is the, the final peg I'm going to give this morning, but probably the most important one. You have only ever seen God. You have imagined it as a million different things. Don't let that just be a nice phrase. <laughs> Don't let that be a philosophy. Sit on a park bench someday and watch everything happening around you and think over and over and over again, this is love manifesting. Can I see it? This is God manifesting. This is my highest ideal, my beloved, dancing. Can I see it? Can I set aside all of my definitions for a moment, all my likes and dislikes, all my desires and, and, and revulsions? Can I set them all aside for a moment and recognize God? That's one of the most profound things to me that Vivekananda ever said when he said, stop seeking God, see him. You've never seen anything but him. You've never met anybody but him or her. <laughs> know that to be true. Live like that. Treat people like that. 
Treat dogs like that. Treat the bus driver like that. Treat the cab driver like that. Treat everybody like that. And you'll walk down that sidewalk just drunk, reeling in that divine idea of love. How do I know that? Because Thakur showed me that. Ramakrishna showed me that. Jesus showed me that. That you actually get high (laughs) on being aware of God always. Seeing that love everywhere. M asks Ramakrishna, is it possible to see God? Is that even possible? The master says, yes, certainly. Don't just say yes. Yes, certainly. You want to see God, you don't have to just believe in him. You don't have to just posit him as as a theorem that, oh, this thing exists. I'm going to find it out one day somehow. It's not like that. He says, yes, certainly God exists. And yes, you can see him. Yes, absolutely. And he says, living in solitude now and then, repeating God's name and singing his glories and discriminating between the real and the unreal. These are the means to employ to see him. All right. So if you want a little bit more instruction than just manifest love and don't be and don't be selfish or be unselfish. Here are you three concrete, absolute things spoken of by the avatar of the divine himself. Yes, certainly you can see God, and this is how you do it. Number one, pull away into solitude every now and then. Go somewhere where your cell phone's not going to ring, where your favorite show's not going to be on, where your favorite song's not going to be on the radio, where your favorite child is not going to call you and ask you for money. You know, (laughs) go somewhere that's away from that and sit there in solitude and try to recognize God. Just try to recognize God. Take, get away from all the things that are familiar to your mind that are creating this narrative buzz that's happening in you that's constantly telling you the story that doesn't exist. (laughs) Constantly telling you a narrative that doesn't have a meaning a constant drone of lies about what you need to do to be happy, what you need to do to be holy, what you need to do to to figure this out or to find that or to touch this or to experience that. Shut up. Go and be quiet somewhere and learn to recognize God. And that will follow you out of that place. So number one, that's number one. So think about that. Takwar himself has just told you to, to, to pull away into solitude sometime. When was the last time you did that? You know, I'm, I'm not really, I'm sort of asking, but I, I don't want a hand or anything. Just <laughs> ask yourself. This was the first thing that Takor tells M when M says, "Is can God be seen? How do I see him? Number one, pull aside yourself every now and then into solitude to think of God. Okay, so that's number one. So what I'm drawing here is what I'm saying is like, are you doing that? Am I doing that? Know that I'm asking me as much as you. Because I would suspect that it's been a quite some time since any of us have done that. So then you have to question our earnestness, don't we? <laughs> we have to wonder, wow, I keep saying I want to know God, and yet I haven't done the first, one of the first things Takor says is, is advantageous to seeing him. The second one, to, sing, to, to repeat the name of God and to sing his glories. Now, I didn't... I, I, I read this actually down in North Carolina. 
not for the first time, but for the first time that I stopped and thought, what does that mean? <laughs> Repeating the name of God, okay, that one's pretty easy. You know, whatever your name for God is. And then I always like that one. There's this great poem by, I think it's by Rabia, where she says, uh, you know, that she had called on God and repeated his name for so many years, and he had never responded. He was like, I, he hasn't manifested himself. And in the poem, she says, maybe I haven't been calling him the right name. You know? And so she thought, I'm going to make up a name for him, my pet name for God. And she says, she ends the poem, the last line of the poem says, and that made all the difference. You know, you have a pet name for your husband or for your boyfriend or for your girlfriend. Not always, but usually. <laughs> Most of the time, it's a nice one. You know, have a pet name for God. Have a name for God that nobody else knows. Just something you call her. Just something you say inside when you think of the divine, when you sit down to pray. Maybe it's a funny one. I told you about my friend Bill. He's going to come next week. You're going to meet him, want to or not. He's going to be here for the, for the children's thing. And you can tease him about this because my, my first name for God after reading that poem came from him. And I think I've told this before, but it's hilarious. When he first started coming to Vedanta, He'd been coming like two years. He was going to the San Diego Center. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of names in Vedanta when you first get involved. I mean, you read the gospel and everybody seems to have like nine different names. And trying to keep track of that and like realizing that the whole world is not in the gospel, that there really is just a subset of like 30 people there, takes some time. So he calls me one day in, in San Francisco and he says, you know, I've been coming to this place for over a year, and I pretty much thought I had figured out who everybody was. But we had a visiting Swami today, and he started going on and on about this guy named Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, he seems really important. He seems to be in the middle of everything. But I've never heard of this. I've never heard of Tucker before. Who is he? <laughs> and I was like, I, <laughs> I loved that. I loved that so much that from then on, there's a, when, I'm, when I'm in a particular mood, I'll be looking through the corner of my eye and be like, hey, Tuck, <laughs> what's going on here? You know, to have that special relationship with the divine like that. So come up with the name of God and repeat that name over and over and sing his glories. You know, I tried it this morning, actually, in here. I thought I was alone, so there's no one to suffer for it. And so I, I made up a short tune, like I tried to think of a jingle. And then I just started making up words as I was singing about, about the glories of God. What is glorious about God for me? And I, I, with shame, I tell you, that was probably the first time that I've actually done that. But with great joy, I will tell you that it is incredibly effective. That after just five minutes, my mood for the day had changed. My idea of the day had changed. So do that. Think of a little jingle. You don't, don't, don't go grab somebody else's names. I know that that's the common thing to do. I'm kind of opposed to that. I'm not going to tell you to stop doing it, but I'm saying if you're going to do that, do this one in addition to. Make up your own tune and come up with your own ideas of why God is great, of why love is supreme. Come up with your own notions of why the beloved is beautiful. Think of things in your own life and sing them out loud. And after you get that going for five minutes, I promise you it'll become a habit because you'll find that really there's a magic thing there that Takor knew something. 
<laughs> Tuck had an idea. <laughs> and he's trying to get you to do it. So that's the second thing. Sing the names of God and the glories of God. And then the third one was what? To discriminate between the real and the unreal. So what does he say? What is real and what is unreal? That's Vedanta 101. Anything that changes, it ain't real. That which is not changing alone is real. Now, at first, that's going to seem crazy to you. At first, that's going to seem ridiculous to you. Stick with it. It not only becomes magical, it becomes profound. And it begins to add beauty because you begin to realize some really cool things. So do that. Discriminate between the real and the unreal. Discriminate between what changes and what doesn't change. And cling to that which doesn't change. In volume six, Vivekananda says, these words, these mantras, they're not the sounds of words. They are God himself. And we have them within us. Think of him. Speak of him. No desire for the world. Buddha's Sermon on the Mount was, as thou thinkest, so art thou. As you think you are. Fill your mind with unselfish thoughts, unselfish queries. Fill your mind with thoughts of others, with thoughts of love, thoughts of beauty, names of God, abstractions and understanding that he is everywhere present, always perfect and always a delight. And that you will become. And the whole world will stop and look at you and be like, wow, that's beautiful. Know that these words that you're repeating in your mind, they're not words. These names of God are God himself. That mantra that you were given at your initiation, this is a very important thing actually to think about. That mantra that you put in your mind, it's not a word and it's not a phrase. Vivekananda says it is God himself. That's one of those things you should freeze and walk around it from different perspectives until you understand what's being said there. That is an amazing statement. An amazing statement. And if it doesn't take your meditation a notch deeper, too bad. <laughs> it should. It will. Most definitely. So those three things, those are the means to see him. Sri Nishagadatta says, by my trust in my guru, he told me you alone are, and I did not doubt him. I was merely puzzling over it until I realized that it was absolutely true. So that's what we're talking about this morning. When you hear when the guru, when the Satguru of the universe, when love whispers in your ear, unselfishness is God, God is love, the mantra is God. Do not doubt it. You may not know what it means, so you puzzle over it. You keep thinking about it while you're sitting there on the bus on your way to work or on the subway. Instead of putting those earplugs in your ears and listening to some tune, pull them out. Sit there and listen to everything and know that you're hearing God. Look around the car, the subway, and realize everybody sitting there is God. Instead of being behind the steering wheel and screaming at the person in front of you for cutting you off, you know, try and change the way you see it. Understand the fun of all of these people going to the same place. It's not hard to see sameness when there's sameness. <laughs> when all of your cars are on the freeway going in the same direction, that's sameness. Let that build some empathy in you. Let that build some love in you. Let that build some understanding in you. You're all going to the same place. Don't you cut anybody off. 
<laughs> That's the focus. And then Takor says, you know, this whole idea of you're not the doer. You know, you're not the doer. God alone is the doer. That's another tool. Freeze that one in your mind. Try and understand what it means. Don't just accept it to be true. Oh, yeah, God's the doer. <laughs> As if you know anything about what that implies. Sit with it. Puzzle over it. It will change your life. It will set you free. Cause and effect. Sri Nishagadatta. This is one I really liked because it stunned me. Somebody asked him, an American actually, an American guy sitting there asks him, what about cause and effect? He answers, each moment contains the whole of the past and creates the whole of the future. So everything that has ever happened, big quotes around that, has created this moment. And everything that can possibly happen from here on out is based on this moment, the conditions of this moment. So this moment, the eternal now, the moment that has no beginning and end, your present moment didn't begin and it didn't end. You see where that goes real quick? There's no such thing as cause and effect. But past and future exist, the questioner says. Maharaj says, in the mind only. Time is in the mind. Space is in the mind. The law of cause and effect is also simply a way of thinking. In reality, all is here and now, and all is one. Multiplicity and diversity are in the mind only. Begin to understand that. That if you can still the mind, stop being caught up in its narrative of difference and multiplicity, you find that unity under all things. Strive for this. Let's live for this. Let's let it, let ourselves be different. Let's let go of our passions and let go of our desires and let go of our intrigues and learn to be fearless, pure, ever free, ever pure, ever loving, manifestations of that nature of God stamped out in each one of us irrevocably. Be that love. Be your highest ideal. Be what Takwar is reminding you that you are.